Hey, welcome. Uh, my name, if you have not uh, come to any of my sessions, my name is Richard Beck. Uh, I'm the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University. Um, and so, uh, welcome to our session, Naming the, what is it? Naming the Devil, Spiritual Warfare Isn't What You Think It Is. Um, and so, the, the origin story of this, a couple years ago I presented some of this material uh, on a book I published, it's behind me, um, a book called Reviving Old Scratch. It wasn't my title. My title was Satan Interrupted. That was my title. Uh, but the, the publisher liked Reviving Old Scratch because I tell a story at the beginning of that book about I was, in, I was in the prison where I do ministry, and one of my co-teachers, Herb, is um, a generation older than my, me, and he grew up in the South, and he said this prayer. We're all praying in the prison, and he said, you know, Lord, protect us from Old Scratch. And I said... My eyes are closed. I'm like, who is that? Like, what did we just pray? And and uh, then we finished. And then I said, Herb, I, I, what? What did you say? Old scratch? He goes, yeah, yeah. Lord, protect us from old scratch. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, you don't know who old scratch is? I said, no idea. And I looked around the room at the guys and, you know, the inmates. And I was like, do you all know? And they're like, no, we have no idea what, what was said. And so, but how many of you have heard that before? Old scratch. Okay. And so you all know that old scratch is just a, kind of southern colloquialism for uh, the devil. And so, anyway, I tell that story, opened the book, and the publisher liked it. So I wrote this book a couple years ago um, about uh, spiritual warfare for, kind of like it's, it's I, I kind of describe it as like my devil for doubters book. Um, and so I want to frame our conversation uh, today uh, and, and kind of explain the subtitle, which is spiritual warfare isn't kind of what you think. Because you might have come in here thinking, Hey, finally, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to get into some real spiritual warfare stuff. And, and it's going to surprise you perhaps uh, a little bit. One of the reasons why I wrote the book and one of the reasons why I want to talk, do this talk today is it seems like whenever we talk about uh, Satan or the devil, um, we, we're in one of two camps. One is our charismatic brothers and sisters, many of them who are in the churches of Christ, know exactly what they mean when they mean spiritual warfare. Right? They mean angelic combat against malevolent spiritual forces that possess us, right? And they know exactly what that means, and they, they've been fighting that battle for quite some time. And then there's the rest of us, and some of us in the Church of Christ didn't have a, a lot of un room for that language, find it kind of a little weird, find it often problematic, where people get kind of a little over, over preoccupied with the devil. Have you not seen some of this stuff that kind of worries you a little bit? Um, people have been described as demon-possessed, and that's, not fun to have that label put on you, and 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 so we've seen the harm of the language, we've seen the abuses and the excesses. Sometimes it starts drifting off from anything that's really reliably biblical. And some of us, if you were here yesterday in the class, I was talking a lot about the rise of skepticism and doubt. And so some of us, it's not the abuses of it. So some of us have moral issues, right? That we worry about if we let the devil. If we let devil language and demon language out of the bottle, people will get hurt. Like some of us have legitimate ethical worries about uncorking that bottle um, because of the way we've seen it used in very toxic ways. But So some of us have moral issues with it, but a lot of us have like just metaphysical issues with it. Like I just don't know if I can believe it's really, I mean it's hard for me to, let me phrase it this way. If you struggle with believing in God, then you throw in the devil and you're like, oh, I gotta believe in that too. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, you're just adding weight to it. To it. It's like, so, I, so some people just have, 
are just skeptics, and they just find it really hard to understand what that would mean to believe in a literal person, you know, personal devil. But it seems like whenever we talk about this, it's either one, you know, or the other. And so when I was doing like a lot of podcasts and radio interviews about this book, and, and it, it, it just seemed like it's either complete skepticism and like, why are you even talking about this? And haven't we grown outgrown this language? If I was being interviewed by like progressive people, you know, isn't it kind of problematic that you're trying to reinsert this language? So all my progressive liberal readers, they hated this book. Like, this is the one book of yours you wrote that I really didn't like because I'm reintroducing things they felt that they've walked away from, okay, for the answers I just gave you. But then the other, my, my conservative interviewers always just wanted me to tell stories of exorcisms that I had participated in, you know? And, and so I'm just racking my brains like, well, there was this awkward time with my wife and, and I, she looked at me funny and I wondered for a minute. Uh, you know, so, and, and I don't have a lot of those stories. And some of, some of you do, though. I want to be clear. Some of you do and some of our missionaries do. I, so I want to honor that. What I'm going to do, what I try to do in this book, so in this book you're not going to get those stories. What, what I'm going to do, what I do in the book, and what I'm going to do today is I'm going to carve out a middle ground between those spaces. I'm not going to tell you stories about exorcisms today. Neither am I going to, you know, indulge in skepticism. We're going to try to wonder if there's a way to talk about the devil that can explore vast amounts of biblical material. You're going to be using your Bibles today. Vast amounts of biblical material that we just don't even use. Um, because we just find the whole thing fairly awkward um, or problematic in various ways. So I am in the middle ground. So when I, when I give you this kind of subtitle, spiritual warfare isn't what you think. I'm talking about this middle ground that we really don't talk about. And so if you're a preacher or a church leader or a youth pastor and you feel like there's just big chunks of the Bible that it deals with our battle against the principalities and powers, against the Satan, and you just are struggling to make that language relevant and powerful without it getting, you know, awkward or out of getting kind of into Pentecostal excesses, today's talk is for you, okay? And, and so a lot of what I want to give you is kind of a, uh, a sermon I would give. People began asking me to come preach a sermon about, where you know, we, they, we've used Reviving Old Scratch to kind of talk about spiritual warfare. Could you come talk about, you know, the devil with us, which is a there's a great speaking gig, right, that I'm the, the devil sermon. And as I've gone around and given the devil sermon, um, the, the response has been fascinating. And I hope you'll find it by the end of this, you'll walk out like, wow, that's the best sermon on the devil I've ever heard. And, and for some people, they would come up to me afterwards and they would say, that was the only sermon I have ever heard about the devil. Um, I mean, we kind of talk about him on the fringes as our opponent or any, but never a sermon directly about how to think about it. And most importantly for us today is, and my interest is always practical, like how can we make our battle with the devil something that we're, is really profoundly relevant to our day-to-day -day lives? Because my concerns about just keeping the language of spiritual warfare focused on demonic possession exorcism is that it still keeps it as a fairly exotic experience that we bump into perhaps once or twice in a lifetime, but we're not really dealing with like when we're dealing with our administrative coordinator. I mean, hopefully you're not dealing with a demon-possessed administrative coordinator, but then again, you know. Um, 
Like, like, you know, like, how, 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 what does it mean to do battle with the devil when you're, you know, stuck in traffic or you're in a family or, you know, like, how, how do we make this language, how do we explode it out to suddenly where you can kind of see all of our life is participating in this, in the words of C.S. Lewis, this great campaign of sabotage. That's how C.S. Lewis said it. He said, the gospel story is this, that we live in enemy-occupied territory. And the rightful king has landed in disguise and is now calling us to participate in a great campaign of sabotage. So that's, I'm going to try to unpack what that might look like. And we're going to do it by uh, going through four, four names of the devil. That's the title, Naming the Devil. I'm going to talk about four names of the devil. Um, we're going to start with uh, Satan, and then we're going to do Lucifer, Beelzebub, and then the devil. And the origins of this is that after I wrote this book, I began being invited to my, uh, my wife teaches at a Christian high school, and the English teachers do a unit on C.S. Lewis's, the screw tape letters. And so they're like, you wrote a book about the devil, come in and kind of do a devil talk. And so I would talk to these high school students about the devil, and I would use the names of the devil to kind of walk them through some of the biblical material. And so you're going to kind of hear uh, the devil talk um, today. So let's begin um, with uh, Satan. By the way, these are the best slides ever to make on the plane. <laughs> People are like, what is he? First is totally wigged out next to me, the devil. I'm just like, is this big enough, the font big? And I'm trying to get the right, the right color red, and they're like, just giving a little talk. <laughs> anyway. So let's talk about Satan. So let's, uh, uh, Satan. We know this comes from the Hebrew, um, uh, ha-satan. And it means what? Ha-satan means um, opponent or, or adversary. And what's interesting, if you kind of look, do a word study on, on the Hebrew ha-satan, is that it indicates more of a relationship than a person. Uh, many, many things beyond the, the person of the devil are described as kind of satanic. In fact, God... Even God's actions are described as satanic in the Old Testament. Um, for example, do you remember Balaam is on the donkey going to prophesy, and, and uh, God sends an angel to stand against, the donkey sees the angel, and so God sends the angel to stand, Hasatan, against the prophet. And so God sends something to be, an, you know, an obstacle, an opponent, to get in the way. And so the Satan kind of represents <clears throat> that force in the world. However you conceive of it, it's that... It's that dark current in the world that is, that is pushing against the benevolent and gracious rule of God in the world. Um, have you not bumped into that? We can debate the metaphysics of how to conceive of that force, but I think anybody in the room, from the skeptic to the true believer, has felt that, that force. So in, in my book, Reviving Old Scratch, I kind of tell my convergence story about the devil. So I was kind of a skeptical person. I didn't really know how to understand a lot of that language. And I, and I began teaching this Bible study out at the prison. And, and uh, I remember the story I tell is, as I, was, I was teaching out there the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek. And uh, I remember hitting the word meek. And they got these skeptical you know, looks on their faces. And I said, um, you guys look like you're not buying this. And they go, well, here's the thing. Like, meekness out here is mistaken for, you know, for weakness. And so you can't do that. And as I tell that story, 
I describe it as kind of like I'd seen the Beatitudes kind of crash into the world, and the collision was really messy. Like I'd seen what the benevolent rule of God would look like in the world, right? Kindness and meekness and sacrifice. And, and the prisoners are just saying, like, listen, our world is so brutal and mean and violent that that's just not a safe way to live. And they said, can't do it. I don't know what that force is that says you can't do that stuff in here, but whatever it is, it's described as the Satan in Scripture. It is the, or it is the, in, in he, uh, Romans, right, it is the, the pattern of this world. And having you not felt that, so, so when Paul says, you know, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, it's kind of like the way I like to think about that is like there's this, this big cookie cutter pushing down on us, trying to get us to conform to kind of a, a pattern of, of life. Have you not felt it? We're all filled this, the world pushing down on us to cause us to be distrustful, to be anxious, to be aggressive, to be fearful, protective, self-absorbed. It's, it's, it's around us every minute of every day, bending us into the conformity of that pattern. And spiritual warfare, whatever it is, it's not being conformed to that pattern. It's resisting it every, with every fiber of your being every second of the day to resist that pattern pressing down upon you. Uh, another example of this is I get kind of dramatic with my children because um, I'm trying to get their attention. <laughs> you try to get the attention of teenagers. It's difficult. Um, and so I give these random intense lectures at odd moments. And this one occurred in the Walmart produce section. Uh, I was with my son, Aiden. We were talking about kindness. You know, he was talking about kids at school. And, you know, kids could be kind of mean. We begin conforming to the pattern of this world really, really early. And, and so I, I, I was telling him about how kindness is like, like an act of uh, resistance. It's nonconformity to the satanic pattern of the world. And, um, and so I stopped Aiden and looked him in the eye, and I said this, and I, I apologize for how dramatic this is. I'm not the best parent. Um, but I'm, listen, I give, I'm giving it 110%, I'll tell you that. Like, I'm, 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 I'm invested. But I looked at him, I said, Aiden, the world is cold, lonely, and mean. Okay. And he's looking at me like, <laughs> can you imagine, like, the lettuce is behind him, and the dad's like, this is the moment, Aiden. The world is cold. And so now they make, my family makes fun of me all the time. Like, yeah, dad, you know, the world's cold, lonely, and mean. But at the moment, I was telling him, and it, the world is cold, lonely, and mean. And I said, kindness is, it is precious, and it is rare. And so you practice it and whenever you see it, you, you cherish it. To me, that's not conforming to the pattern of the world. That's spiritual warfare that you fight for every second of every day um, in a world that says, you know, you can't, meekness doesn't make sense in this world. Um, so, the Satan. Let's now talk about uh, Lucifer. Um, the, the, the name for Lucifer uh, comes from, it's only mentioned one time in Scripture. It's in Isaiah 14, um, 14 verse 12. Isaiah, let me read this to you. Um, 
I want to read it, and you guys tell me where you hear Lucifer mentioned in this. Ready? How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. That's the only mention of Lucifer in Scripture. Did you catch it? Yeah, day star. So for those of you that know, um, it's only in the King James. If you read the King James, it'll say, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Most of our translations translate, because if you, Lucifer is just the Latin for a day star or morning star. And so most of our translations translate that. So, How you are fallen, O day star, O morning star. But the King James just left the Latin as it is, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. And that's where we get the name from, okay? So, so one of the reasons I like to pause here and think about Lucifer, because Lucifer in this text... Um, isn't the Lucifer that we typically think of. Do we know who this, who's being spoken about here? The, the prophet here is speaking towards um, a political entity. This is the king of Babylon that's being spoken to. Um, he has taken the children of God into slavery, and God is going to emancipate his people. And as they are being emancipated in Isaiah 14, um, he's saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to, like, trash talk the king of Babylon. Um, so the, the context begins um, back in verse 3. So let, here's the fuller context of verse 3. When the Lord has given you, this is Israel, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil, right, from the exile, and the hard service for which you were made to serve, so the exile's over, you'll do this. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. And then Israel's supposed to say this to the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased from the insolent fury. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. The scepter that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows. Had ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. And the whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth in singing. So everybody's really excited, and it goes on and on. And in the middle of that, you, king of Babylon, O Lucifer, how you have fallen from heaven. And so the original Lucifer was the Babylonian king. And, and that image, though, of, of, of Satan falling from heaven like lightning, right, becomes, begins becoming associated with Jesus' opponent I mean, the Gospels, right? The, the disciples, the 70, go out, and they're, and they're healing, and they're exercising, and they come back, and they say, hey, even the demons, you know, respond to us. And then Jesus says to them what? I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And so, and, and, and Satan is also described um, as the God of this world. So when C.S. Lewis talks about enemy-occupied territory, that's the biblical imagination. Satan is explicitly described as the God that rules the world. And, and, and Satan, in Revelation, um, is connected to the, to the fall from heaven, right? Revelation 12, there was a war in heaven, and Michael fights against the, 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 the devil and throws him out of heaven. So this idea of this power being thrown out and cast out of heaven. Satan be 
begins to be identified with as the king of Babylon in, in, the, in the Revelation, Babylon is this metaphor for the unjust and wicked misrule of the world. Um, and that means not just spiritually, but politically as well, right? In the, in the temptation narrative in Luke in particular, this is very clear in Luke, Satan takes Jesus up onto a, a mountain, and he shows him what? All the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says this, if you worship me, I, all the kingdoms of the world, and if you guys want me to poke you a little bit, I can make this hurt. Okay, so America would be included. And you're like, oh, okay, that hurts. Um, hey, you came to Richard Beck talk. You're going to be 10% offended or more at some point in the talk. All the kingdoms of the world, I give them to you because they have been given to me, and I can give them to who I will. So the king of Babylon, Satan, becomes identified with the one who rules or actually misrules the entire world. And so the reason why I like to bring Lucifer into the conversation is because now we're starting to see the spiritual warfare thing isn't just spooky stuff for a paranormal activity part eight. You know, it is about concrete things like homelessness and poverty and oppression and violence. And it, Satan, as the king of Babylon, is associated with the political misrule of the world and the way people suffer under that rule. And if you want some more evidence of that, if you want to flip to Revelation, um, the fall of Babylon is described. Okay, Revelation um, 18, verse 2, right? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And what's interesting about Babylon's fall is who cries for who? Like, who gives the big boo-hoo for Babylon? You know? Verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail. So all the political powers weep for the fall of Babylon. This isn't a spooky supernatural thing. Political powers weep over the fall of this kingdom. Who else weeps for Babylon? Verse 13, the merchants. This is the economic aspect. There's the political rule. The kings weep. And now the merchants, Wall Street, is going to miss her badly. And why? Revelation says, and the merchants of the earth, they will weep and they will mourn for her. Why? I quote scripture, because nobody buys anything anymore. Nobody buys their cargo anymore. That's why it's so sad when Babylon goes. It interrupts commerce. Cargo of silver and gold and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple cloth and silk 
and scarlet cloth and all kinds of scented wood and all kinds of articles of ivory and all kinds of articles of costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and iPhones and cinnamon and spice. I don't know. Did it say that? I think I saw uh, I think it said something about an iPhone in there at some point. And myrrh and frankincense and wine and oil. And it goes all the way down to the end. And what? What's the last thing sold? Human beings. Slaves. Babylon is this world where there is still so much sex trafficking and slavery. And so spiritual warfare isn't just about praying hedges of angels around your PowerPoint presentation. It is about things like sex trafficking. It's about homelessness and poverty. The Satan is the ruler of Babylon, and Babylon is this place where kings live in luxury with her. And people are buying and selling and creating oppressive, oppressive worlds. And so what does spiritual warfare look like if we look at this from the lens of, of Lucifer? It looks like this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And then it says in verse 4 and 5, Come out. Come out of her, my people. Come out of the demonic misrule of the world. Separate yourselves from these systems of oppression and injustice. That, that's what makes Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Lucifer is our name. Our third name for the devil is uh, Beelzebub. Um, in, in the Gospels, Beelzebub is identified as the uh, prince of demons. Do you remember this? Jesus casting out demons. He's exercising in, in the scribes of the Pharisees. Well, the only reason he's able to do this is he's in league with Beelzebub, who is described as what? The... The, the prince of demons. And Jesus later on, as he discusses Beelzebub, explicitly identifies the prince of demons, Beelzebub, with, uh, with Satan. How can Satan, if he's divided against himself, you know, how can that kingdom stand? So Beelzebub is another name for the devil. We don't really know the origin of, of Beelzebub. But one hypothesis about the origin of the name Beelzebub um, comes from the Old Testament in a second kings in second kings um, Ahaziah who's one of the wicked kings has a has an accident he he falls and he hurts himself okay and then he does something so it begins with an accident verse 2 second kings chapter 1 verse 2 now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and he lays sick, so he, he has an accident, he's hurt. And so he does this. He, so he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether or not I shall recover from this, from this sickness. And so there's this Canaanite deity, the god of Ekron, Baal Zebub, um, and and you all see the problem here, right? The God of Israel has hurt himself. And so instead of turning to Yahweh, he turns for help 
to a pagan deity, go inquire of Baal Zebub. Now, Baal is the Canaanite word for Lord, and Zebub is the word for, anybody know? Flies. And so, go inquire of the Lord of the flies whether or not I will recover here. Um, and so, and there's some speculation about, you know, who the Lord of the flies, you know, was. Um, and so we think that this Baal Zebub, over time, eventually the name comes down to us as the Lord of the flies becomes Beelzebub, um, Baal Zebub. The reason why I like thinking about the devil from the angle of Beelzebub is it, is it brings in um, the chief sin of Scripture. The chief the worst sin, the chief sin, the originating sin, the, the, the virus that creates the fever we call sin, is what? It begins with the first commandment, right? The sin at the root of all sin is yeah, idolatry. That produces all the other sins. Um, the, way, the way the Bible thinks about this is, all the other sins that we think are sins, those are like the runny nose and the itchy eyes. Like those are all sit downstream symptoms of the deeper sin of turning to the Lord of the flies rather than Yahweh. That, that fundamental choice, that creates all, the, all of our subsequent problems. And so Beelzebub allows us to think about spiritual warfare um, as an issue of, of idolatry. Um, I find this really helpful. Yesterday I was talking about millennials and the faith of millennials and how to, this is one of the, this is another location where I think you get some traction with millennials. Yesterday I talked about how skepticism and doubt is on the rise amongst young people and, and how a lot of my students think that Christianity is, you know, the, 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 the invitation to believe in unbelievable things. You know, they just, they find these things hard to believe in and so I'm trying to believe in these things. I find it hard to believe. And but there's lots of good biblical work now that suggests that kind of one of the better ways to interpret pistis, um, the way to interpret the word that we would typically um, think about faith, is, is not really belief. Like, because belief, if you think of like faith as belief, it's, it's like a mental thing. I got to believe in this thing that's hard to believe in. But many people think that the many scholars would argue that the better word to interpret faith is uh, is allegiance. Faith is pledging allegiance. Faith is um, getting off the fence and picking a team. Right. In the biblical and in the biblical worldview, the teams are be the Lord of the Flies or Jesus Christ. The, the fundamental confession of of the early Christians wasn't Jesus died for my sins. That, oh, that's a piece of it. The fundamental confession in all the sermons in the Book of Acts was what? Like, let me ask you this: if you if you survey all the sermons in the book of Acts, the very first gospel proclamations, do they or do they not sound like this? And you're all sinners going to hell 
But the good news is Jesus died an atoning sacrifice for your sins. And if you believe in Jesus and are baptized, you'll be saved from judgment. Is that any sermon in the book of Acts sound like that? that? None of them have that message. The message is always this. The one you crucified is risen from the dead. And he is Lord in Christ. That's the good news. Right? If, if, if the Lucifer is the misrule of the world, the proclam- gospel proclamation is, the, C.S. Lewis, the rightful king has landed and has begun a revolutionary subversive movement. Pick a side, people. Baptism is picking a side. Baptism is choosing a king. Baptism is a confession of who's Lord. And then there's a radical reconfiguration of women's life depending upon that allegiance. That message preaches with millennials. Like, they get that. Because the one thing they really get is the world seems kind of screwed up. You know, they, they, they see that. And you're like, well, hey, be a part of the team that's on it. It's fixing it. Because it's messed up because of the Lord of the Flies. That's one way to think about this idea of idolatry. How do you pledge allegiance? Pick a side. Choose somebody. I was at Mark, my friend Mark Love's um, talk last night, talk about Bob Dylan. And so there's a great Bob Dylan song. You guys know the song I'm talking about, right? Everybody's got to serve somebody. You guys know that Dylan song? That's allegiance, right? You gotta, you're going to serve somebody. In the biblical imagination, everybody has a Lord. There are no lordless people. Everybody has a Lord. Pick one. Um, and uh, the tomb is empty, so pick well. Uh, so, but for some of us, it's a little bit closer to home. Like, like our idolatry is harder to spot. Like, I believe in Jesus. Like, like I picked my Lord, and so how does this manifest itself? And so here, here are like two, two idolatry detection questions, okay? These are my, like, Richard Beck's go-to, like, how to detect an idol in my life. Um, first one uh, comes right out of right Second Kings, right? He was hurt. Who did he turn to? So that's one I, idolatry detection question. is like when you're hurt, when you're down, when you're in pain, when you're suffering, when you're desperate, when you're at the end of your rope, who do you pick? Where do you turn? To a pill or a bottle? To more work? Up, to more work? You're going to work your way out of this? Is, is the thing you're, it's, it's the thing you're leaning on. Let me put it that way, right? What are you leaning on? You know, for a lot of us, it's, for Americans, we're leaning on two things. Our insurance and our retirement funds. Right? That's what we're really, push comes to shove, that's what we're really counting on. Right? What do we lean on? The second anti-idolatry question I would give you is, um, what makes you so awesome? <laughs> like, y'all, we all have, like, the thing that we're good at. It's the little thing, it's the little, it's the little thing that helps us live a heroic life, you know. Um, so for me, maybe it's like how well this goes, right? 
maybe this is going to go great. You might compliment me afterwards. I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I matter. You know, I made a difference, you know, and I'm going to use this as some lever to kind of feel good about myself. We all have those things in our lives, do we not? Um, maybe it's your exquisite taste in coffee. Like you're the coffee snob, you know. That's the thing that makes you better than all the other Philistines in your workplace, you know. Or maybe, you know, like you know, it's, it's something, right? I, I always tell my students, everybody's a snob about something, you know. You know, you leave somebody's house and go like, the way they decorate, you know. Like it's, it's, it's your exquisite way to put flower arrangements together or it's the size of your church, it's the size of your company, it's the latest success, it's the fact that you're so fit and tan and whatever it is, right? We're all, we got this little thing that we kind of like, yeah, this is why I'm like kind of a little bit better than everybody like that. And whenever you find that thing that makes you so awesome, there is a buzzing around it, right? The flies buzz around that because that's where the devil will get you. That's what you're leaning on, right? And I ask myself all those two questions all the time, you know? The devil is so, because you know the devil is, he, he's not really like, tempts me to be wicked. You know, hopefully none of you guys are going to be tempted to, like, extreme sociopathic behavior later on today. Like, I hope not. You know, I don't know if that's in play for you. And so, and that's the trouble when we think of the devil as that, that depravity. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm not saying that's not a problem for somebody and that's a problem with the world. I'm just, I'm just saying probably that's not for us. And so the devil, but so the devil isn't necessarily associated with like wickedness the devil is the father of its lies it's it's the deceptions that we get trapped in that that cause us to to lean on idols that's and so spiritual warfare is is peering through the lies um so that we can give allegiance to our to our king and that brings me to, finally, um, the devil. Um, the devil is, is the word that's used in the New Testament as a, as a kind of Greek equivalent of the Satan. It's a, but it's a little different. It takes on a different register, okay? And where, where Satan represents an opponent, the thing that stands against the rule of God, right? Whatever is pushing against God's reign. So we pray in the Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermon on the Mount, we pray, it is in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, right? We pray that your kingdom come on earth. As it, so that's a prayer of exorcism, right? We, we pray that your kingdom come on earth and establish the rule of God on earth. That's a prayer of exorcism, okay? And, and, you, and that's why Jesus' ministry of exorcism matter. We see the, the dark, satanic rule of Satan being pushed back in this great campaign of sabotage. So there's the opponent. The devil, though, is, is, it's almost a legal term. It is the accuser. It is the voice of, of accusation. And we see that in the Old Testament, true, right? The book of Job, is, you know, G 
Satan seems to perform this voice of accusation. God says, have you seen Job? And Satan says, yeah, he just, he, he's a cynical guy, the devil. He's like, wow, because he's so blessed. And so he pinges Job's motivations. And so he brings accusation. We see this also Zechariah, right? Satan brings accusations against the priest of God, you know, and, and he's rebuked for bringing accusation. And, and so that's um, another vision that we see of the devil in um, Revelation 12. I've mentioned this in Revelation 12, this battle, this battle that takes place in heaven, um, and how the devil's described there. Verse 7, now there a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, they fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. The one who accuses them before the throne room of God day and night. Verse 13, and when the dragon was thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And so the devil is the one who accuses us before the throne room of God day and night. Um, my favorite metaphor for this that comes from the Catholic tradition, because the accuser is... In a legal parlance, it's often considered to be kind of like the prosecuting attorney, right? The, bring, the person who brings, the devil is the prosecuting attorney in the, in the court of heaven. Day and night, the prosecuting attorney brings accusation, you know, against you and me. Um, my favorite illustration of this is in the, uh, the Vatican uh, sainting process. So if somebody's proposed to be a saint, they go through this process, and they go through different stages, and they get to be, like, blessed for a while, and then they go on up to, you know, they go to the final they're going to get to be a saint, and they've they got to jump through a lot of hoops. And at one point in the process, the Vatican will kind of have a courtroom proceeding, and they will appoint a person to bring accusation against the potential saint, which is really an icky job. Like, what are you going to do today? Well, I'm going to accuse a delightful human being, because you don't get to this level without being like a one of the most exemplary people on earth. I'm going to spend my day saying why, don't they, why they don't deserve to be a saint. And the Vatican has a name for this appointment. You know the name of it? They are the devil's advocate. They will play the role of the devil and bring accusation against the saint. The worst case you could make against why they don't deserve it. Really, an icky job. I'd take a long shower after that day at work. But to me, I find that whole idea of the Satan accusing us 
before the throne room of God, like one of the most terrifying visions in all of Scripture. Is it not? Isn't it terrifying to think that when you and I die, and there we go walking up to the pearly gates, the devil's going to be there. Imagine him in kind of a nice suit with a briefcase, and he sees you walking toward the gate, and he just kind of smiles and says, oh, man, I've been waiting for you for a very, very long time. I would start trembling, and you'd shuffle into the courtroom of heaven. You'd stand over there at the defendant's desk, alone and exposed, and the devil goes over there and click, click. This big old file on you comes out. The devil looks at the courtroom of heaven and says, Shall we begin? And they start when you're like three years old, and you like smacked your little sister, and you're like, What? Like, literally the beginning? Yes, the beginning. Like, well, have you met my sister? She was annoying, and she always wanted to take my video games, and you were not the best sibling in the world. And then we start walking through your high school years, and you're like, oh, no. Do you remember prom night? Like, come on! I was young. Through college, do you remember spring break? Two, you know, like, we're bringing that up? Every little meanness, pettiness, betrayal, infidelity, every porn site you ever visited, so you were looking at this for apparently 50 seconds, every, just everything coming out on the screen of heaven. And I imagine this would take a long time to get through my list of sins. So I imagine this goes on for like seven days, you know. By the seventh day, I'm like, <laughs> just beaten down. And by the time the devil's done, you fold up the file and snap the lid shut and go, they don't deserve it. And he's right. We don't. And that voice was in heaven, accusing day and night. But the gospel is, when you get to those pearly gates, and you stand at the defense table, and you look over there at the prosecuting attorney, there's nobody there. That voice has been kicked out. And there's nobody there to accuse you. And instead, a very tender arm comes over your shoulder. And your big brother looks up to the father and says, Hey, Dad, like, I lived this life. Like, I had flesh. I know what it feels like to lose a father when you're young, when Joseph died. And to kind of take care of your family. I know, I know what it's like to have your very best friends betray you and stab you in the back. I know what that feels like. And I, I know what it feels like to suffer horribly and die completely abandoned. And instead of accusation, you get an advocate. And that's, by the way, what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit this weekend, right? It is the defense attorney, the paraclete. 
That's what you're going to get. That's the gospel. But here's the sad news of Revelation 12. God is not listening to that voice anymore. The voice has been cast out of heaven. But Revelation 12 is very clear. The voice is still among us. Pursuing us where? On earth. The voice is still accusing and waging war against the children of God. God isn't listening to the accusation anymore. We are. That voice is in our ears. And all too often, so this will hurt, we are doing the devil's work for him. We, the church, accuse the world before the throne room of God day and night, pointing fingers and accusing and bringing accusation. We, in many instances, have become the devil, the voice of accusation. And I personally think we should just really get out of the devil's business. But this is what I really want to say as we end. That's really not where the spiritual battle is being fought. Where are we most listening to that voice of accusation? Where, where is it found? If you're looking for the voice of the devil, the one that accuses you before God day and night, where is that voice found? You know where it is exactly. It is in your head. It is that voice that will not let it go. And that is the battle that we're all fighting. God isn't listening to the voice, but we are, it's, it's got us in its grip. So my favorite example of this is a story from uh, Nadia Boltz Weber, who was here a couple years ago. And in her book, uh, I think it was her most recent book, she tells this story. She's a Lutheran pastor. And she tells this story in her book how she was uh, inviting her church to this uh, weekend retreat. Now, she's the pastor of the church, sending out the Evite email invitation to her people to come to this weekend retreat. And she's typing in everybody's names, you know, off the Excel spreadsheet, entering their names, going to send it out. She gets, like, John's name. And John was, well, John was John. John was hard to get along with, a little needy, and kind of an irritant. And he, and he had this thing for Nadia. He'd just follow her around, never let her rest. She just knew if John was at the retreat, she would not be able to have a Sabbath at all. And she just envisioned what it would be like to invite John for the weekend. And in a moment of weakness, she left his name off the invite. A preacher, a pastor, left the name off of one of their congregants to the church retreat. And then he died. And she had to preach his funeral. And what I hate and like about her story is, again, we're not psychopathic, wicked people, right? But we are petty. And we've all done stuff just like that. Don't invite them. Don't let them know, you know. We've all done that. And the meanness of it, remember, the world is cold, lonely, and mean. The meanness of it is only brought into focus because he died, right? Most of the time we can get away with it, but she couldn't this time. And what seemed like a little thing is magnified to just how mean that was. 
and she is just killing herself. The voice of accusation in her head is just roaring. How am I going to stand over his dead body and preach a sermon knowing what I did to him last week? And she cannot rest. And so she calls a fellow pastor and says, I got to come and talk to you. I have to confess this sin. And so she goes to her friend and she tells a story. And then her friend said, okay, naughty first. Okay, that was bad. <laughs> like, like, it was, that's, yeah, that's, you shouldn't have done that. And then she said this. She said, but Jesus died for your sins. Even that one. And believing that, is the best definition of spiritual warfare I got for you. Believing that against the voice of accusation in your head. Yeah, 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 Jesus is forgiving my sins, but like this one, like this one, and we all have, right? We all have this one. Jesus has forgiven me, but I, <sighs> this one. And the voice of the devil is in our heads day and night accusing us and believing in it. So this is what I think spiritual warfare is. In Ephesians, Paul says this prayer, and this will be my benediction for you. Paul, Paul says this prayer. He says, I pray that you have the power to comprehend this. And I like that. I pray that you have the power to believe something. Because typically when you think of power, it's like lifting a heavy rock. Right? I have the strength, the power to lift this heavy weight. And so Paul says, he's getting you ready. This is it, people. This is the heaviest weight you will ever have to lift in your life. This will require the maximum strenuous effort. This is the hardest rock to lift. I pray that you have the power and the strength to believe this. How deep and how wide and how high is the love of Christ Jesus for you? Because for many of us, it's really, really hard to believe it. Because of the devil in our hearts and in our heads. And I think we help each other believe it, and I think that's what the church is for. The church is to be a place to make the love of God believable, to make the love of God credible. That we stand in front of each other and say, you know, you're welcome here. Me too. I have my own skeletons. Like, we, we, we make... At the prison, I had a, a guy named Steve, and I'll end with this. Um, I was talking about the love of God, and Steve said, how, you know, how can I believe that? You know, he didn't have the power to believe it. Because he said, I've never heard anybody in my life say they love me. Nobody's ever said they love me. Like, my mom never said she loved me. My dad never said he loved me. I've never had a, 
a, a romantic partner in my life that ever said she loved me like I've never, could you imagine your whole life? You've never heard a human being look you in the face and say, I love you. Like he, and so because he had never heard a human being say, I love you, he couldn't believe in this abstraction. He lacked the power to believe it. And so each week, Steve comes in after he's patted down from the guards, and I hug him. We will be his only visitors for decades. We will hug him, and I will say, Steve, I love you. And I pray that drop by drop, as we stand in front of each other, as sacraments of the love of God, that the love of God becomes believable, that we give each other the power to believe that the voice that accuses us has been cast out of heaven, and Jesus is waiting for you with open arms. That's spiritual warfare, and I pray that you have the power to believe it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, there are things in our hearts that the dark spaces that we like to forget about and the weaknesses that we have succumbed to even this week. And the voice of the devil rages in our head, accusing us. And so I pray that this moment we have the power to comprehend how deep and how wide and how high is the love of Christ Jesus for us. And may we be a people that brings that message to a hurting world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.